Welcome to the Lilypad Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Lilly. Every week I interview someone who is making their unique mark in the world by doing what they love and offering their gifts and talents to help support their communities. I talk to authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, artists, musicians, and everyday people just like you who are making a difference in the world. I hope you're inspired by these conversations to get out there and do your part to make your community better. I'm not the writer I set out to be when I started this little journey. Like I said, I wanted to write young adult fiction and I wrote three novels and none of them sold. Mm. (laughs) So then I was asking myself, well, who am I as a writer? I'm still learning what makes me, me as a writer. And with every new project, another little layer gets unveiled and we'll see what the next one is. I spent a lot of years, especially growing up, trying to hide from certain parts of myself or change certain parts of myself or just pretend things weren't what they are. And that's exhausting. <laughs> so, so that honesty in your everyday life is vital. Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Lilypad Podcast. For this episode, I interviewed author Matt Browning. Matt is a Charleston, West Virginia-based writer. His latest book, The Definitive Golden Girls Cultural Reference Guide, examines the many pop culture references made on the Enduring series. His other books include Bookstore Explorer, West Virginia, which is a celebration of the Mountain State's independent bookshops, and Chicks in the City, which is a children's book about urban farming. But we talk about so much more in this interview than just Matt and his books. We talk about TV, we talk about movies, and what I really enjoyed about this conversation is we're just two people, you know, who have shared hobbies. We both love movies, we both love TV, we both love to write, and so we we chat about all of those things. And then, as is often the case with some of my interviews, we get into how these things are relevant to life and, you know, how they sort of inspire us to do uh, things that that motivate us and hopefully that serve our community in some way. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I tried something a little different this time. I wanted to hit Matt with some, uh, you know, rapid fire questions. And you may hear me do that again in later interviews. Uh, just, you know, changing things up a little bit. But I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's, it's you know, it's not really formal or structured. We're just two people having a conversation about stuff that we enjoy. So without further delay, here's Matt Browning. Matt Browning, welcome to the Lilypad podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, this, this has been kind of a long time coming. I know you and I were, were chatting early back when I first started the podcast, and I was just kind of waiting for the perfect time because you've, you've had some, some pretty big news happened recently. Um, why don't you uh, just tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and then maybe we can sort of segue and lead into to what I'm talking about when I'm talking about big news. Sure. So I am a writer based in Charleston, West Virginia. Um, set out to write young adult fiction, but have not published any books in that genre. <laughs> my first book was a celebration of West Virginia's independent bookshops called Bookstore Explorer. So I went around the state, visited every shop here, talked to the owners, put it all together in a book that came out right before the pandemic. Um, Then during the pandemic, I put out my second book, which was a children's book about urban farming called Chicks in the City. So very different from a bookstore book. And uh, in September, coming up real soon, I will be releasing my third book, which is a pop culture book about the Golden Girls TV show. Now, having been Facebook friends with you for a little while, I know that you're a big fan of the Golden Girls. Um, and when you when you said that that was coming out, I kind of felt like maybe that's the book you've sort of been thinking about, you know, releasing for a while. Would I, would I be correct? Yeah, I had. I mean, I've watched the Golden Girls since I was five when it came out right. in 1985. Um, and it's taken on such a resurgence in the past, what, decade or so. I mean, there's just endless merchandise and 
books and other things related to that show. But I was watching it one day and they always made jokes that were hilarious in the 80s about people and places and events. And a lot of them, I think, have gotten lost over the years and younger viewers especially don't get them. So I thought, wouldn't it be nice if there was a guidebook that explained all of these references episode by episode? And that's what I wrote. <laughs> I bet, man, that, that required a decent amount of research, but I, I'm sure that was a lot of fun research. It was fun. I joked that watching the Golden Girls was going to be work. Um, and then when I started actually doing it, I realized maybe I shouldn't have joked because it kind of was work. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did two full um, watches of the entire series, 180 episodes, for the sole purpose of the book research. Um, and then, I, then after I did all of that and logged them all, then began the research part. Um, but I tell you, there were so many references. There were more than I thought. I thought up a notebook just of listed references that I had to then research. And did that, um, I know that like with people who, who analyze and critique film, you know, they often complain that while they, they love what they do, it can sometimes ruin how they view film. Like they can't just watch a movie now. Did that happen with you in that show? Did you, can you just not just watch an episode now? Oh no, I can, I, I can go watch one right now. <laughs> See, I, I'm, I'm like that as well. And, you know? and too, it, it really helped me to understand some of the references that I may not have gotten all of these years. Um, so I think, yeah, it did not sour me on watching at all. I've, I've been rewatching episodes again now that we're coming up to the release, just to refresh myself on some of those references that, you know, you write about it and then months and months and months go by. So you might not remember what you'd written about. Um, but it's, it's as exciting for me to watch as it was then. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, it's incredible how trendy nostalgia is becoming, you know, I, I, you know, we can, we can cite a lot of different, um, things that are examples of that, but, um, I know that for myself, I just, Golden Girls, Mama's Family, you know, any of those shows, cause, cause I, I'm, you know, I was born in 79, so we're close in age, but any of those shows that I just remember watching either with my parents or with my grandparents. Um, and, and of course now, obviously yeah, at a different age, I do get and understand some of those pop culture references that I didn't understand then. But uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I, I've done a little bit of theater so acting is always my big, when I'm watching a movie, when I'm watching a TV show, I'm very much paying attention to the performers. And that's one of the things I always admired about Golden Girls is that it's such just, just a wonderful cast, uh, very talented actresses and actors. Um, and so, you know, people who are, where the, where the show is coming back in popularity and it's kind of trending again, um, I wonder how much of that also is just in respect to seeing a different style of acting than what we see in television now. You know, I think that's a good question and a good way to put it because I still love to watch those old four camera sitcoms with the studio audience or the laugh track. And you just don't see that produced too much anymore. Um, in fact, are there even any? There's probably a few that still do that live audience sitcom, but not a lot. And I think the nostalgia is really big on shows like Mama's Family, like you were talking about, or I don't know, Designing Women or 227 or any of those old shows from that era. You can stream them all now and people are just falling in love with them all over again. And yes. with the Golden Girls, you know, it, they had so many time specific references that you would think it would feel dated, but it doesn't. That one just keeps going. And hopefully we'll keep on going. <laughs> I hope Betty White lives, outlives us all. <laughs> yeah, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? It's just one of those that you want to, if they figure out the, the key to immortality, they need to give it to her first, right? There, there's comfort knowing she's in the world with us, you know? For sure. Um, one of my favorite, my wife's favorite movies is The Proposal with Ryan Reynolds and and uh, Sandra Bullock, but Betty White just really makes that, that movie even better. So <laughs> Anything she touches turns to gold, and I have talk to some of the crew and some of the cast members of the Empty Nest spinoff show. And everybody always just said, Betty is exactly what you would hope she would be. 
and then some. So you, you did a little bit of research into some of the cast members. Um, what are some things that you learned that were unexpected? Um, I've, I learned about this one a while ago and it's just become a funny story now, but you know, I do a lot for this spinoff series, Empty Nest. They live next door to the Golden Girls and I've interviewed several of those cast members and uh, <laughs> they confirmed that that B. Arthur didn't care too much for Betty White. That's always kind of been one of those fun Hollywood rumors, but yeah, they were like, nah, she couldn't stand her at all. And apparently Betty, or apparently B. Arthur also had a, an extreme dislike of chewing gum and would force you to spit out your chewing gum if she saw you with it on the set. <laughs> Man, if B. Arthur told me to spit out my gum, I'd spit out my gum. If B. Arthur <laughs> told me to do just about anything, I think we <laughs> right. <I'd> do it. <laughs> Yeah, apparently she was kind of large and in charge there on the Golden Girl set. Which which I guess is perfect for her character's dynamic, you know, it's just, yeah. Well, and sometimes you have those actresses that that fit the shoe that they're filling in whatever, you know, whatever character they're playing in the show, yeah. so. I mean, could you imagine anybody else playing that character or no. any character B. Arthur has ever played? No, which, which again, kind of adds to some of the fun between her and Estelle Getty, you know, just the because <laughs> Sophia didn't one person didn't listen to her and didn't you know <laughs> but, just the physical stature of tiny little Estelle standing next yeah. to very tall B Arthur it was just comedy in and of itself and Estelle was actually a year or two younger than B in real life um, which is fun to think about Betty White was the oldest of the four and is still and is now the only one still with us yeah and just to, to go back to what you were saying about, you know, the sitcoms that we don't really see much of anymore. That's another thing is just that cast chemistry, um, you know, that I know that it can be difficult to, to cast a show in which you have all your cast members just seem to work together. Um, you know, even, even in the midst of conflict, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're people, so there, there's going to be conflict, but to find a way to still make it work, um, you know, and that's another thing I always admired. And when, when you know you have, an actor like with Mama's family, mm -hmm. you have an actress like Vicki Lawrence that, that people have said is one of the sweetest people in real life, but her character of Mama has got to be, you know, a little more crude and abrasive. And, and then you have someone, uh, you know, other cast members that maybe in real life are a little more difficult to work with, but their character seems to be the nicer and the sweeter character that, and that, as I said, someone who's been done theater really admire when someone can become something that's different from what they typically are. I mean, that's acting, that's, that's really what it is. And I would hope if you're gonna play a jerk or a curmudgeon or just an unlikable character, it probably helps your fellow actors if you're a nice person in real life. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> I've heard a lot about, a, about uh, actors who have played roles that were hated by the public and have actually received actual public hate. And it's like, don't you understand what acting is? I mean, I'm playing a character. That's not really me. And that's especially true of shows because they're that character for a long period of time. I mean, they're the villain for a long period of time. Um, like heard that a lot about like with soap operas, you'd always have those heel characters that, you know, people in real life thought they were just the worst people. I'm like, no, I'm good in real life. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you shut all of that off and then perform? You know, yeah. Uh, I guess it gets done every day, for sure. So, what would you say then is maybe one of the reasons why nostalgia seems to be very trendy right now and very much in a, you know appealing to people? I mean, we live in a tough world. There's a lot of negativity you could focus on, um, and I think. For me personally, watching those old shows like that, it just conjures up a simpler time perhaps and it just allows you to shut off the problems of the day and just laugh at something that's familiar and comfortable and still just funny. Um, I can laugh at an episode of The Golden Girls or any other shows, Seinfeld or any of those kinds of shows. I watch that stuff probably more than I watch newer television. Which, I mean, there's a lot of great new TV out now, but I'll sit down to dinner and turn on a Seinfeld versus turning on something new, you know? And it's yeah. just funny as it was then. 
that's another good show that you know the, yeah there were a lot of 90s pop culture references but so much of the of the the conflict in those shows are just still relevant they're still yeah. dealing with things that we struggle and deal with today absolutely like seinfeld or friends they they didn't have quite as many as let's say political for instance references as maybe a golden girls did so a lot of it other than the hairstyles and the clothes um, <laughs> that dates it of course of course but a lot of the material could be performed now without too many changes now golden girls on the other hand was full of references that sort of anchored it in the 80s and early 90s yep. but we still love it it wasn't so much that it hinders anybody's ability to watch and love the show and luckily it made a it made a perfect avenue for me to write this book <laughs> yeah that's, that's i've got to brought it back to that because i know that that's a lot of what you focus on in your book is sort of just defining some of those um era specific pop culture references that occur in the show and the origins of that. And, um, and it's, yeah, that's a really interesting thing to think about because we are going through a very difficult time right now. And, you know, I, television entertainment of any kind really is in a sense an escape. You know, it's an opportunity for us to sort of step away from our, our troubles or if not step away from them, at least maybe have the opportunity to, to include them in whatever it is that we are, um, watching or doing does that make sense you know because sometimes i can watch a show and even if it's from 25 years ago it still allows me to think well what i'm dealing with right now isn't as bad because i can think about this or okay i get it i'm going through this thing but it's a part of this you know it's like story does that you know as a writer i'm sure you've you've, you've read books and read stories where it's made you think about something that you've been wrestling with in a whole different perspective. Oh yeah. Well, you watch an episode of the Golden Girls, they, they handled, they, they addressed things like racism, yeah. you know, divorce, the AIDS crisis, issues that we're all still dealing with today. Um, I mean, not every joke holds up, <laughs> but most of them do. And it, it's fascinating to watch them with that eye you know, thinking about them in the way of how are they relevant in 2021. And yeah. it's not a hard, it's not a hard connection to make. No. And, and I, and I think that there's, they're still being held up as a really good example of, of friendship, you know, of, of, you know, cause you have these four women that have their, their major differences and there's often conflict, but you know, they're still loyal to each other, faithful to each other. They view each other as family um, cause you know, as you know, sometimes the conflict gets vicious. They're not always good to each other. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are times I'll watch it and I'm like, this is almost a toxic relationship. <laughs> you know, some of that be disliking Betty, maybe bled through some of those line readings. <laughs> very Yeah. When she does the eye rolls, whenever <laughs> Rose will make one of her references and you see B roll her eyes. I'm like, I don't know if that's acting. I think that might be another like, Oh dear God, here it goes again. <laughs> so is is golden girl is that your would you say that's your favorite show of all time yeah probably okay. golden girls an empty nested spinoff which is not as good quality i guess we could say but both of them are right up there they were just part of my childhood and have segued into part of my adulthood <laughs> okay so that's number one and number two let's see if we can do a top five if you had to put three more after an empty nest, what do you think they would be? Okay, let's. I'm gonna stick with the multi-camera sitcom. Okay, genre. that works. Uh, the Facts of Life was another one I grew up loving. That's a good one. Um, so that would be three. Seinfeld is way up there. Okay. And you know what? I'm gonna make a liar myself and insert one that wasn't a sitcom, and that's Murder She Wrote, but another from that era that I just loved. Angela Lansbury, man. Yeah. That, she's another bitty white for me. When, knowing that she's in the world with us is just comforting. Yeah, yeah, that <laughs> brings back a lot of memories too. I watched that show with my grandma a lot. Well, that's funny. My one grandmother was the Golden Girls fan and the other grandmother was the Murder, She Wrote fan. And I just gravitated to both of them as the kid. And now as an adult, I feel like I'm 30 years older than I guess I actually am. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I always thought it was funny that my grandma, my grandma was a very, very polite, you know, Southern, Southern type of woman, you know, she never knew a stranger. If you came in her house, one of the first things she'd want to do is feed you. She's very respectful, uh, didn't use any foul language, just a, just a kind woman, but absolutely liked mama's family. I mean, mm -hmm. just thought that that show was hilarious and thought that mama was funny. Um, you know, obviously didn't agree with her and how crude and crass she could be at times. But yeah, I, I watched that show at my grandma's more than I expected. She liked it. We watched yeah, it. I would probably put that one if I had to pick that fifth sitcom, that one might be the one. I do watch some new stuff, but you know, that's not yeah. you know, it's fun <laughs> to discuss. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, well, we're talking nostalgia. So we're, we're picking apart some of these older shows. Um, yeah, those are all really good ones. Um, yeah, Facts of Life was one that I, I unexpectedly really liked. And, uh, you know, growing up, I, I always joke that I, I, when I was a kid, I, I always crushed on tomboys. So Joe from Facts of Life was, was my, my big crush. Um, but no, there were other reasons I loved that show. It's just a wonderful show. And then, you know, different strokes. Um, goodness, Three's Company. There's so many things that we, so many shows that we could sit here and talk about from just the 80s that, I almost think of that as like just a golden age of television for at least for our generation, you know, uh, just so many good shows that, that when, when I watch any of them, I just sort of get that, like you said before, that, that slight feeling of just escape. Like I need I was loving the, you know, the whole reboot trend. I was mm -hmm. really into that. I mean, most of them weren't as good as the original, but it was still fun to uh, see these people back together playing these characters that we all, grew up loving like the full house reboot or the uh it was roseanne but now it's the connors yeah i actually watched that i watched that because i'm i'm a huge fan of john goodman especially too. as dan connor i mean that was the reason i watched Ro well actually my joke is one of the reasons why i watched <laughs> I, I i like full house it was just very hard for me to relate to full house it felt like a fantasy family sitcom to me <laughs> but shows like roseanne and married with children where the family was dysfunctional. <laughs> Those felt real. Yeah, they felt very real. And again, they were real to a more extreme. You know, my family obviously wasn't that that bad, but yeah, just just the whole idea of the working class family and the conflicts that eke into that and the struggles with money and the feeling like the government is just making things worse for you. It's one of the reasons I stuck with Roseanne, even though I dislike Roseanne Barr. I stuck with that show. And then when it became the Connors, I thought, well, I'm, I'm still a huge fan of Dan Connor and John Goodman. So I'm going to keep watching. Um, so I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad that they. Lori Metcalf. I mean, you put them together and it's going to be solid. Now the original Roseanne, like you were saying was so much more relatable to me. I grew up in Logan County. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Oh, these are the people that I understand and can relate to more so than your, you know, upper middle-class whatever the Full House family's name was. But yeah, but uh, yeah, I agree with you on Roseanne herself in more recent years has uh, done some damage to her, <laughs> to herself. Um, but you know, they managed to keep it going without her. And, and I still watch the Connors too. And yeah, it's just comfortable and nice to see John Goodman on my screen, sitting on that couch with that Afghan behind him. And, he, and in, even though the, char the character of Dan has sort of, you know, changed as a result of of Roseanne's death I, I still feel like he's Dan Connor there's some familiarity to it you know and that's that yeah that's definitely that says a lot about anytime I, like you're talking about the, the reboots I think that what unfortunately they have going against them is I get it they reboot them sometimes with the plan of reaching the new generation yeah. but if it's still a more recent show you know someone from our generation might be looking for something familiar or some nugget of what used to exist in the show that we knew. And if it's not there, then I think that hurts the show's ratings because you and I are still watching television. We still have access to television. So when they pull back something from the eighties, and that's why I think a lot of them have done more like instead of a remake with a whole new cast or whatever, it's uh, okay, we're 20 years in the future. You know, it's been 20 years since the show came out. So we're going to bring back all the old characters just 20 years later. I mean, I think they did that with Punky Brewster. Didn't, uh, I think Peacock, uh, it was the app, released a Punky Brewster 
they did. I watched an episode to see how it was. And it seemed fine. It wasn't a show I could really relate to, so I didn't really keep watching it. But they also did that with Saved by the Bell. Yeah. And I watched that one. And it was actually pretty good. Like I watched it all the way through. Um, I think they they did that one well. Yeah, so, I didn't. At, my wife watched both of those, and she seemed to have liked them. Um, you know, around the time that they'd come out, I just had a lot of stuff going on. I hadn't had an opportunity to get back to them, but I knew that those were being being rebooted. Um, yeah, and and so it it's just interesting to think about our connection to nostalgia. That that I'm not the kind of person that wants to go back. You know, some people that's that's more of a regression than it is like I just like to think about that time frame. There are people that sometimes like we need to go back to the way it was. We need to go back to that time. Like, well, that's 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 not possible. <laughs> I don't, but, there aren't many reasons I would want to go back in my life, <laughs> right. but I'll take television shows. <laughs> right, I'll take the memories. I'll take yeah. I'll take the you know again when I when I watch those shows, I'm reminded of my grandfather and my grandmother and sitting in there even even if i get to watch any of the old saturday morning cartoons you know um just that feeling of missing mama and papa and and being in their house with them and catching an episode of a show that's a good feeling to hold on to for a little bit it's just speaking of cartoons they've just rebooted the he-man and the masters of the universe yes and i have not watched it yet because first netflix rebooted she-ra mm -hmm. and it's just okay Okay. It's a little more, yeah. yeah. Well, it's one of those things I was telling you about where they're trying to reach a new generation. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't much other than She-Ra and a few characters from the previous show. There isn't much that exists that literally seems to rep, you know, really resemble what we might've known. And I only watched She-Ra as a kid because she was connected to He-Man. Cause that's, you know, that was my reason for watching it back then. I was never a fan of the She-Ra cartoon in the eighties. Anyway, I watched He-Man. But now, yeah, the, the new He-Man does seem to be aiming towards people like us. It, it wants okay. to pick up where the last one left off. Um, he's getting some negative reviews for certain choices he made that I won't spoil for you or for okay. the listeners. Yeah. But uh, I'd be interested to hear your take on the choices that, that Kevin Smith made story-wise once you watch it. All right. I will definitely, I'm going to have to watch that soon then. And uh and and get back to you on that then um i'm glad because i was i was definitely a he-man fan i had toys i watched the show um and then i know that cartoon network did that reboot that was just okay um mm -hmm. i even watched the dolph lundgren movie like that's how much of a fan well, i loved that movie <laughs> yeah it's so campy now it's so you know like it's so absurdly campy now but it was just it was just fun and it was like i i think that might have been my first experience with having a character be brought to film like a cartoon character be brought to film because i want to say that yeah that came out before ninja turtles ninja turtles movie was the next one that i was like oh i was so excited oh, i remember going to the movies to see that i had all the toys i had everything yeah the soundtrack album <laughs> oh the pizza hut the pizza hut set rap album that they did you remember that was it vanilla i had the ninja turtles song oh i can't remember was it you, vanilla ice in the second one, Vanilla Ice had an appearance oh, in the movie, okay, yeah, and had it. Yes, absolutely, um, because the, the the two 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 of the villains like crash his concert. So, oh, I remember. Believe me, I, <laughs> Ninja Turtles one and two were definitely the movies that I was excited about coming. Now that's a franchise I haven't kept up with the more recent reboots of the Ninja Turtles, even though I loved yeah. it as a kid. But yeah, if they do something with um, me, man, I'll, I'll tune in. <laughs> the, the first Michael Bay produced film, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, was, I mean, it was just okay. It, it, you know what I mean? It, it was something you might expect from a Michael Bay film. Just a lot of fighting action, you know, it's it's a blockbuster movie. But in terms of being faithful to the Ninja Turtles, not at all. It really, it wasn't, unfortunately not. So, all right, well, we've talked a lot about television. Um, I want to kind of like shift gears a little bit and talk a bit about writing because you mentioned at the beginning that you, you know, you are an author. Um, and, um, but I was just, I, I know that you also have a real heart for TV. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll talk about it all day. Yeah. 
So I'm going to ask you just a few uh, questions and these are sort of like rapid fire questions, but you don't have to hurry up and answer them. So when I call them rapid fire questions, I just mean that you don't know what they're going to be until I ask you. So you sort of might have to think quickly on the spot. Okay. So we'll, we'll, we'll ask this one from the perspective of a, of a writer, because you obviously mentioned three diverse books that you've written and had published. So um, try your best to answer this. What, what makes you, you as an author? Oh, for God's sakes, I'm supposed to rapid fire that one. <laughs> <laughs> what makes me, me as a writer? I feel like that is a question that I hope I am seeking the answer to as long as I am breathing and typing and picking up a pen. Um, and two, I'm, I'm not the writer I set out to be when I started this little journey, like I said, I wanted to write young adult fiction and I wrote three novels and none of them sold. Mm. <laughs> so then I was asking myself, well, who am I as a writer? Um, and then the bookstore thing happened because it's my passion. It's my, my personal travel hobby passion is to go to bookstores. And I want to, I want to know what makes bookstores so great and why we all love them. Um, and I want to know the stories behind the people that run them. So that's how that came about. And I'm not doing a very good job of answering your question probably, but I guess the point is I'm still learning what makes me, me as a writer. And with every new project, another little layer gets unveiled and we'll see what the next one is. <laughs> Hey there, podcast listeners. I want to pause for just a moment to tell you about Mountain Care Network. Mountain Care Network is a mental and behavioral health agency, and it was created to increase accessibility to mental health services and decrease the stigma associated with mental illness in West Virginia. The wonderful people of Mountain Care Network believe that a healthy mind leads to a healthy life which creates stronger families and communities. And they understand that life is difficult at times. So if you or a loved one needs support, Mountain Care Network makes it easy to refer and receive services. Their team of licensed professionals provide services in a variety of settings, including the office, homes, schools, and other community settings, and via telehealth. The people of Mountain Care Network they meet you where you are. In fact, that is one of their slogans. We meet you where you are. So if you'd like to learn more, please check out Mountain Care Network's website at mountaincarenetwork.com. No, that, that's a really good answer because, you know, clearly the, the three books that you have had published are, you know, diverse, which I guess somebody could say that the bookstore one and the Golden Girls one are both nonfiction, but that would be limiting because they're two different kinds of nonfiction. Um, and you you set out to think of yourself as a fiction writer, and then you found the, the three books that you've published, one's in children's, you know, a children's story, and the other two are, you know, sort of works of where you had to do research and learn a bit about a subject. Um, but good. Yeah, I, I, I like to think of that, that, that you are still, you consider yourself growing. And that's not to say you still may have an opportunity to publish one of your, you know, young adult fictions. Well, the book I'm working on next is a middle grade novel, which is between children's and young adult, if you're in the publishing speak yeah. um, area. So we'll see how that goes. I just finished a very, very early rough first draft of that book. Um, so now I'm letting it sit a while and I'm going to come back to it in a couple months and we'll see what's there. Awesome. All right. Here's another question. Uh, what is something that makes you feel inspired as a writer? Something that makes me feel inspired as a writer. I mean, for me, in terms of what makes me want to actually write, it's an idea. It's the idea that feels strong enough within me that there's a story there that I could tell and only I could tell. And then that's, that's what gets this whole thing rolling. That's how I got started in the first place. When I was about 25, 26 is when I first started writing my first real book. 
and it just stemmed from the idea. So if you got that to start you off with, then hopefully you'll be off and running. I mean, I've written poetry and lyrics since I was like 14. Um, but again, it all goes back to that spark of an idea. That's great. Another good answer. Yeah, I, I can't remember who it was that said this, but I remember reading a quote from an author that said that like, you know, when, when you, if, if you're really taking your craft seriously, when that idea comes, you have to write. I mean, it's, it's not something that you make optional where it's like, well, I'll write that down later. Like, well, I'll, I'll just put that idea in the back and, and we'll like, no, because if you do that, then it may be gone. Yeah. But if, you know, if you're very serious and passionate about your craft, then when that idea comes, it, it should be an obsessive, like, oh, I got napkin, <laughs> pen, whatever I have available, you know, pull out my phone, stick it in my, my notebook. I keep a little list on my iPhone of it, even titles, sometimes just an interesting title yeah. will come to my mind. And I'm like, oh, I need to save that. And maybe I could use that somewhere. See, and I, I, I've written some short stories. I started a novel. I have a lot of unfinished projects, unfortunately. How do I? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, recently I've started just trying poetry and I challenged myself to write a poem every day, even if it's bad. You know, and so like, I don't know if you've ever seen me post on Facebook, but I asked some friends, if I published a book of poetry, would you buy it? And a good bit of my friends were like, well, yeah, of course. And so I'm compiling just even the bad stuff. It's all, you know, in a, in a Google Docs file right now. Um, and so that kind of like this sort of thing where it's like, you know, what inspires you? Like for me, my answer is, is like when I get an idea, I just write it down, even if it's bad, even if it sounds stupid. I write it down because I wouldn't have had that thought if there wasn't possibly some value to it, you know? So that's a good way to think about it. And I, uh, like I said, I've written poetry for years and years. I, I moved away from it a bit when I got into the uh, novel writing realm, but when I still go back to it, I tend to write poems like songs. I feel like I've written a lot of potential songs. I'm just not a musician and therefore they aren't set to music. <laughs> I need to find that music musician to collaborate with to turn these into actual songs. I, mine has been more of a, like a sort of a reigniting of, of my interest in the mythopoetic movement. Mm -hmm. People like Robert Bly and Michael Mead, James Hillman, um, that sort of were like latched onto that men's movement that happened in the seventies, but it brought forward a lot of, of epic poetry and mythology um, in terms of like, learning from that, you, you know, pulling life lessons from mythology and fairy tales and poetry. So, you know, that's part of what re and then I'm an English teacher. So why wouldn't I like poetry? Right. <laughs> Obviously. So good. Um, let me ask you another question then. Uh, what is one way that writing has made a difference in your life that you didn't expect? So an unexpected way that writing's made a difference in your life. Um, I mean, quite frankly, having conversations like this one, we wouldn't be having if I weren't in this business or a lot of the opportunities and the people I've met, it all stems back to my writing, you know, all the bookshops that I've visited, all of the interviews I've been able to do with people. Um, yeah, I know that's kind of a Silly answer perhaps, but I don't know. That's just, that's how it has changed my life so far. Um, now when this Golden Girls book drops and I'm suddenly an expert, <laughs> ask me that again and we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you're probably going to get all kinds of phone calls and messages and questions about the Golden Girls that you know, you've, you've just been dying to answer them for, for years. You know you have. Carrying all this knowledge around for 35 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So suddenly you're a Golden Girls expert. Everybody wants to ask you. That's because I, you know, I, I still have a day job. Like the writing hasn't changed my life in th that respect. You know, it's still largely a creative pursuit so far. Um, so that's that's kind of how I look at it. Now, what is your day job, if I can ask? Yeah, I work at West Virginia State University um, in marketing and communications. Okay. So the marketing and communications background is very helpful when you're an independent author, especially trying to promote your books. So do you work on campus? 
Mm-hmm. I'm on campus right now. That's actually where I'm really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not on campus now. I'm at home. Right. But right. yeah. Yeah. I, I, I teach for Kanawha County Schools, but I teach for their collaborative program. So we partner okay. with the university and we have high school students who come on the campus and take college courses. Mm-hmm. So I have an office here on campus and all that. I didn't, I didn't know you were working on campus. Yeah. Yeah. Small world. <laughs> I could have just come up there and done it with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just alive and in person. Well, I interviewed uh, a, a, a musician from West Virginia uh, a few weeks ago, and I'm going to have his episode coming out soon. And we were talking, and I found out that he lived right up the road from me in Nitro, and I had no idea. I'm like, <laughs> we can get together and go fishing sometime. I didn't know he was that close. Yeah. I, you know, I knew he was from Charleston, but he currently lives in Nitro, like less than a mile up the road from me. So that's the thing, like podcasting has really changed, you know, in unexpected ways for me. It's like if, if I weren't doing this, then I wouldn't know, holy cow, there's this person right up the road who has this talent, you know, and there's someone who works on campus who's published three books. You know, at, when you when you become passionate about something and then you you put yourself in that position, you know what I mean? Like you you love to write, so you write and you try to get books published. And in doing so, opportunities have opened up that were unexpected. And so I'm feeling that way about doing this podcast where it's like, if I hadn't messaged that person and talked to them, I never would have known this. And now I know. Um, and so it's a learning experience for me as well. So, all right. Well, let me hit you with another question then. Okay. What do you think is the most important thing that you've learned, not just as a writer, but in your life? Hmm. I'm going to try to combine the two and it's being honest, um, mainly with myself (laughs) and everything I produce as a writer and just in everything I do as a person. Um, I I think it's easy. I spent a lot of years, especially growing up, trying to hide from certain parts of myself or change certain parts of myself or just pretend things weren't what they are. And that's exhausting. <laughs> so, so that honesty in your everyday life is vital. Um, but also when I write, I want to write something that I can stand behind and believe in, you know? Yeah. Um, I don't want to write trash or garbage or something that I wouldn't be proud to stand up and give a reading for. You know, when you write fiction, you, you, it's fiction, you know, it's not necessarily real, but you can approach it and craft it in a way that's honest for yourself. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And that, and that's a really good way to, to, to put that. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of like, I'll be 42 in October and I'm amazed that there's still I look back at the the kind of person I was trying to be in my 30s and my 20s in my teens and even at 42 I still feel like there's still things that I'm either discovering or rediscovering mm-hmm. you know that I I was embarrassed about you know I I'm I can be a very hyperactive and boisterous and loud person sometimes and um you know I can remember when I was in that kind of mode, when I was hyper, when I was very energetic, you know, someone either in a friend group or in a family group would tell me to calm down, you know, simmer down, you're being too loud, come on, you know. And I remember somebody telling me, he's just, they didn't know I was listening. Like, he's just so much. And that, I don't remember how old I was. I was fair, maybe in my 20s, you know, I was an adult when I heard this. He's just so much. And it hurt, but now it's like i i don't i don't want to be denying those parts of myself that are not really any kind of harm to anyone else and if they're a part of who i am to deny them is to just not really get rid of them but push them down and then what if they come out in in more negative toxic ways do you know what i mean yeah so like that i i like that you said that that they're they're it's, it's amazing that I'm 42 and I'm waking up to these parts I mean, of, of 41 in October. And yeah, yeah, I'm still learning new things about myself. I hope to always be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, 
and, and, I, and I, I like to think of, our, of myself as a constant work in progress. I mean, really, because if, if the world around us is changing and, and events happen in life, circumstances happen in life, why do we want to remain the same person forever? Yeah. You know, there have to be parts of ourselves that we not necessarily get rid of, but, you know, that we no longer, they don't serve us anymore. And we have these new elements of things that we're learning that now serve us and serve our loved ones and our friends and our family members. Um, so I like that you as a writer as well, you want to reflect some of that in your work. You want to make sure that, that what you create is a part of those aspects of yourself that you no longer want to deny, that you want to be honest about. Um, and I find that, like I said, in the poetry that I'm writing, sometimes I'll look at the bad stuff and be like, well, it might not be a good poem, but there's some part of you that wanted to say that mm -hmm. in that way. So, leave it, leave it as it is. Don't delete it. Don't be ashamed of it, embarrassed by it. You know, I know you know this as a writer. It's incredible how those of us who write creatively, we can feel that mirroring of the creative process and life. And I know artists feel it. I know musicians feel it. I, I know that even athletes who use their body in a creative athletic way, they feel it. They feel the mirror between what they're doing and what is happening in life, or at least in their life. And poetry too is a great form of catharsis, I think, in terms of sort of just sorting out what's going on in your own mind and pouring it out onto a page. <laughs> poetry is a great, it's, it's always been sort of a, I don't know if coping mechanism is the right word, but that's sort of how I treated it over the years when I was writing a lot of it. No, it absolutely is. Um, and I, I, Real quick story, you and I were talking a bit about how I love to run, and I told you that I run trails, and yesterday I did uh, almost 15 miles in the New River Gorge with a friend of mine and a group, we, but it ended up, the group got well ahead of us, and it was just kind of he and I, mostly me, holding up the back, and he just, you know, he stayed with me, and it was a, a, a great experience, but the heat got to me, and I ended up, you know, going into heat exhaustion, almost passing out, and luckily I was able to rest a little bit get to cool water, get some cool water on me and, and, and get my body temperature back to where it needed to be. And then finish the whole 14, that's about almost 14 and a half miles. Um, and in this morning I was sitting down trying to write about that experience. And I, and I keep like pausing, trying to figure out ways to articulate, you know, um, that experience. And like you've said, yeah, it can be cathartic, but at the same time, it's like, I'm, creatively trying to replicate what I was feeling during that time and, 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 and the juxtaposition of the beauty of being in the mountains and on the trail and the fear of like, what if this gets serious? It didn't, but what if it did? Um, and that's, I think the challenge of creativity, you know, that's a great way to put that. Yeah. And when you're passionate about something, you did the bookstore thing, you know, I'm sure you found it difficult. Like, I know how I feel about bookstores. I know what my thoughts are when I enter one and I learn about one. I just need to figure out how can I articulate that on paper? How can I creatively share that with a reader? And then when you look at the business end of it, how can I do that in a publishable way? You know, like I might think my poems are fantastic and I love them and they mean so much to me. But then when I pitch them to a publisher and, and he might go, I, I don't understand half of these. I don't think our reader are going to, or even just that, I don't think there's a niche. I don't think anyone is going to want to read this. So did you find it challenging to get the bookstore book published right before the pandemic? Well, I was working with a publisher to publish that one. Um, yeah. I pitched the idea. They said, great, write it. So I wrote it. And then when it, when I handed it in, they were like, well, we love it, but you know, given the nature of shops to come and go, we're afraid it won't have a long shelf life. Yeah. But they decided not to move forward. And I'm like, well, I've already written this book. Um, so that I, put, I ended up putting it out myself. I self-published okay. that one. Okay. And uh, that was the more challenging part. No, it came out right around Christmas um, 2019. Yeah. So January, February, it was going great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can imagine the, the, the challenge of putting out something that it essentially encourages people to get out and go check out your local bookshops. Yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden like, Oh no, 
Um, it, I mean, it sold pretty well. Um, it's kind of slowed by now. It's been out over a year. Um, yeah. But I will say real quickly that we only lost, I think, one shop to the pandemic that's in the book. And I think two or three have opened since I put the book out. Mm-hmm. So that's that's great. <laughs> that is good. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a really quick, funny, uh, I love bookstores as well. And uh, enough that it kind of got me in trouble. <laughs> we, my, my, my wife and daughters and I took a trip to New York City and I really wanted to check out that they've got a little Shakespeare and Company bookstore there. And, and I wanted to go there, but we had, we, you know, we were mostly traveling on foot as you do in New York. And I had looked at the map wrong and had assumed that it was close to a place that we were going to be anyway. So we had gotten off the subway and then we were going to walk and I thought, no big deal. It's just a few blocks. My first time in New York City, never believed that something's just a few blocks <laughs> from where you think it is. And unfortunately, I mean, we, we were already on our way there. And I ended up sort of dragging my wife and daughters with me to this little bookstore that they could care less about because they're not, you know, she's not interested in bookstores. She'd rather go to a restaurant or a shop or something like that. So she was pretty upset with me that I had had them walk. So I don't remember how many blocks we walked, but it ended up being a lot farther than we expected. Um, and cute little shop. I, I'm going to say I liked it, but it was just unfortunate for them that they followed me. You know, yeah, I have to be careful who I invite on my bookstore exploration. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm kind yeah. of regretful. The one time I've been to New York, it was before I was doing this bookstore thing. I'm like, oh, I missed so many great ones. But yeah, one of these days. And and we were booking a, uh, we were looking at, uh, we we're going on vacation to a beach and she was looking at a resort. And then I heard her say, nope, not that one. And I said, why? And she said, it's right next to a bookstore. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm like, all right, then fine. Cause she knew I'd yeah, be the one I would want to book. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, this has been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with me. And uh, you know, I, I really do. I wish you the best in, uh, you know, whatever the next project is you're working on. And I know that you're going to hopefully experience some attention and some fame from this Golden Girls Guide once it comes out. Um, when is the release for that expected? Uh, supposed to be out September 15th. Okay. Um, the world is ready to receive it with, with the Delta variant flying around, but we'll see. And, and how can my listeners learn a little bit more about you and about your other books? Do you have a website or uh, any social media? I do. My website is mattbrowningbooks.com. Um, pre-order links to the Golden Girls book are on there. On Twitter, I'm Matt Browning. And on Instagram, uh, Instagram and Facebook, I'm Matt Browning Books. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. It's been a pleasure. And I guess now that I know you work on campus, I'll, I'll probably probably see you around at some point. How many times did we walk past each other and not know? <laughs> we probably had no idea. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And I know we have mutual friends, you know, in, in the writing world and all that, but I did not know you were working for state. So I'm sure I'll see you around. Well, thanks. This has been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, same here. You have a great one. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Lilypad podcast. For more information about our show and for notes about each episode, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the Lilypad podcast. And if you enjoyed this show, give us a follow on Spotify. Or if you listen on Apple Podcasts, be sure to give us a rating and review. It really helps other people learn about this podcast. So once again, thanks for listening.